0: Hello and welcome to the Build with Clay podcast. I am your host, Clay Davis. This podcast is designed to introduce you to people from across the world who have one thing in common. They want to grow in their life and inspire others. You'll get a front row seat to hear about how they define their mindset and their purpose. We'll unearth their habits, their failures, and learnings throughout their journey. And this will allow you to take those habits those failures, and those learnings and apply them to your personal growth journey, no matter where you're trying to build yourself and grow. This podcast is designed for you, so thank you for being here. Prepare to meet interesting people, hear fun stories, learn something new, and plan to leave inspired. In this episode, I chat with Benita Denny. Benita is married to Ryan Denny from episode two. She's an avid rock climber and is a close friend, Who is gracious enough to share her experiences as a nurse practitioner in the ICU, the intensive care unit during the pandemic. In this episode, she shares stories from the front lines, mistakes that she learned from, and how she and her colleagues have found happiness during a difficult chapter of life. Enjoy. Super excited to have Benita Denny on the podcast today. Benita is competitive kind, a dog lover. She's an avid climber, and I'm proud to call her a friend. Benita, welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh, thanks so much. I'm so excited to be here.
0: Well, we're thrilled to have you, and you bring a lot of interesting expertise and experiences, especially during the pandemic. So we're going to get into a lot of interesting things today. So just grateful to have you here. I know you pretty well, but there's a lot of people that don't know you. So I'm going to start with a couple get to know you questions. First one, Would you rather snow ski or jet ski?
1: Oh, snow ski. So easy. Grew up skiing. Love it. This is a no brainer.
0: And you grew up skiing in some pretty cool places.
1: Yeah. So my mom is from Switzerland and we would spend the summers uh, in Switzerland and occasionally the winters because obviously you can't ski in the summers. Um, And so we go into the Alps and we would ski. And I remember my mom, when we were like children could just walk with us between her skis. And just be like, this is how to do it. you have to grow up on these slopes. It was wonderful.
0: Yeah, that contrasts mightily from my growing up. I did not grow up around the Alps. I grew up around the water. So my answer would be jet ski, but yours is way cooler. All right. (laughs) If you were about to be a passenger on a road trip and you enter a convenience store and you're going to get one drink and one snack, what are you getting?
1: Okay. For some reason, when I enter a gas station, I have to get those... um, Honey mustard and onion pretzel bites. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Yep. Very. It has to be that flavor too. Um, I only ever get them on road trips. And I would probably have to have a coffee with it. And I know that my husband an hour later would be complaining about me having to stop and go to the bathroom. But I'm going to do it anyways.
0: (laughs) Perfect. Excellent. All right. Would you rather know every language or would you rather visit every country?
1: Visit every country, for sure. We're huge travelers. We have to, that would be amazing to see the whole world. That's a life goal if I'm lucky enough to ever do it.
0: Funny enough about this this question is that I know you have a story around traveling. So I know that you and Ryan are big travelers. Well, let's rewind to the beginning of your relationship. And you both decided to go on a trip pretty early on in your relationship. And I think it's a pretty fun story. So I'd love for you to tell it.
1: Uh, So Ryan and I meet in like late September, a long time ago, and decide two two weeks after meeting each other that we're going to go on vacation together in December, January. We're going to go skiing. We're going to go to the other side of the country, Seattle and Vancouver. I'm kind of a poor student. And so I'm just like, this is someone who's willing to pay for some of my stuff. All I have to do is get there. So it's a win-win for me. And we book it and it's all fine. And... I don't know, maybe like three days later, I start to panic. Like, you just met this man two weeks ago. He could murder you. You have no idea who he is. You haven't met his family or his friends. And I start to kind of panic about our vacation coming up in December. And I'm starting to – I'm 22 years old at the time, so put yourself in your 22-year-old shoes. And I'm like, three months away is a really long time. We could hate each other by then. And so instead of keeping this to myself internally – I just like verbal diarrhea to Ryan almost every single day for the next three months. I'm like, you know what? We're going to go on this vacation. We're going to get back. We're not going to be together anymore. We're just going to go our separate ways. It's going to be awful. I'm like explaining all of this to him and he just keeps telling me to stop being so negative. And anyhow, time goes on. We go on this vacation. It's beautiful. It's amazing. We stay together. He rubs it in my face like a month later and says, see, you thought we would break up into our separate ways. And eight and a half years later, we've been married four and a half years. We've been together the full time. It has worked out. Thankfully, despite the fact that I was manic about this vacation. But it went great.
0: <laughs> You're lucky that man has a lot of patience.
1: <laughs> he had obviously, so much patience. Obviously,
0: he, he thought very highly of you. So um, kudos to Ryan for, uh, for sticking with you there.
1: Yeah no kidding.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. Well, well, awesome. Well, Hey, here at build with clay, we're going to build with Benita Denny. And we've done that with your husband, Ryan, he was on episode two. So for anyone who wants to check out Ryan's podcast, please visit episode two. Now in each episode, I ask each guest two questions. First is around growth mindset and the other is about purpose. And it's no different here. So before we get into your Nurse practitioner uh, responsibilities and what you've experienced throughout the COVID pandemic and all sorts of other things. I wanted to ask how would you define what a growth mindset is?
1: I think coming from somebody who is a type A perfect, recovering perfectionist, I should say, I think growth mindset is the ability to embrace failure, simply put.
0: I really, really like that definition. Simple, straightforward, it's perfect. Now, from a purpose and why standpoint, everyone's got their own purpose or their why in life. How would you define yours?
1: I think this is a little bit two-part for me. My family and my friends are my primary why. It's why I get up in the morning. It's why I want to be a better, kinder person. And Then I am incredibly passionate about the environment. I know that sounds weird as a why, but I love the outdoors and all things outdoors, and I would love to maintain it and take care of it for generations to come. And I worry about what we're doing to the world, and pandemic has kind of solidified some of that for us. Um, And so I would say those are my two, family, friends, and then the environment and preserving it.
0: Those are great, great reasons. And I'm, as I mentioned earlier, proud to call you a friend and I'm proud to be part of a little part of your why. So, Benita, you are a nurse practitioner at Duke Hospital in North Carolina. So, it's a huge healthcare facility in North Carolina. And you all have had a time over the last two years, given the COVID 19 pandemic. So, I would love to hear from you and from a frontline experience. What was it like?
1: In the beginning, it's changed so many times. Uh, We've had so many different perspectives on the pandemic. I work at an intensive care unit. We take COVID patients, um, very sick COVID patients. So it's been incredibly interesting. The beginning of the pandemic was weird. There was like a hysteria. I don't know if you remember, Clay, but you remember the CDC was telling people not to wear masks, to not spread hysteria. Um, So we were doing the same thing at the hospital, right? We're like, we're not trying to change... like get patients super scared. So we're not going to do this, which in retrospect is like insane. Um, But we didn't know any better at the time. So we went with it. And it was, you know, we were seeing Italy and New York get hammered in the beginning there. And we were terrified. We are going to be next. That's what this hospital system is going to look like. And we canceled all of our elective surgeries and we upped our resources. And the hospital was a ghost town for like the first month and a half. I mean, nothing was happening. You could have seen a tumbleweed in the middle of the hallways, which was really interesting because on TV you were seeing the complete opposite. And of course, over time, it got busier. COVID came. We had to learn how to take care of patients. We locked the hospital down. People couldn't visit. And it just changed the dynamic of everything we did.
0: And so this was April of 2020?
1: Yeah, this is March, April. April was probably still quite quiet. Because if you remember, we had a lockdown that everybody really adhered to through the end of April. I think May came and everyone was like, we're done. And people started getting out again. Like We would take walks in our neighborhood in the middle of the road because nobody was out.
0: Yeah, there's some wild images up in New York on the Golden Gate Bridge, right? I mean, there's just like no one around. I mean, people are walking in the middle of Madison Avenue. People are walking on the Golden Gate Bridge. I mean, it's just... It's ghost town, like you said.
1: It was incredible. There's actually a, there's a movie. If anybody has Apple TV, I would recommend it. It's called The Year Earth Changed. That's the David Attenborough movie, the documentary. And it's in, it takes part place in April when the whole world shut down and they went and got footage of what places looked like. It's amazing.
0: That's a great recommendation. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. So what else comes to mind when you think back to those first couple months of the pandemic?
1: Uh, I think we were scared because we didn't know what to tell people. We didn't really know how to treat people other than our experiences with the flu and things. So people are getting sicker and sicker and they're asking us questions on the phone about their loved ones saying, what are their chances? And we had no idea what to tell them because this is the first round. We don't know what their chances are. We don't know how long they're going to stay on ventilators and supportive devices and we're trying to learn as the rest of the world is. And it was it was a little bit terrifying because it felt like we were kind of fish out of water a little bit.
0: That's interesting because you're being looked at as the expert, but you, it doesn't seem like you felt like the expert.
1: Not at all. We had no research on this. The research we were relying on was how have we treated H1N1, how have we treated the flu. And most of those therapies, it holds true now, are the same. It's supportive care. A little bit of medicine here and there, but at the time we didn't know is there going to be a miracle drug if we give antivirals? Is that going to fix these things? And um, a lot of it was just trial and error.
0: What mistakes or failures did you and your team make initially?
1: I made significant mistakes. So I think the hardest thing for us was suddenly people are not allowed in the hospital anymore. So now you have to call them to give them updates about their family members. And in the process of all this, you have to tell them that their family members sometimes are dying and that conversation needs to be done on the phone, which is, as you know, very different than in person reading somebody's body language and being able to interact with them. So communication was
0: used to delivering that type of news. Just, it was just in person.
1: Yes. I will say my experience with it has gotten my repertoire is significantly more than it was pre-COVID. I, at some point during COVID, it was at the point where every almost every day I would go to work, we would have a conversation like that. And that was not the case beforehand.
0: How did those conversations go?
1: Um, I'll tell you my first one. It's one I'm a little bit ashamed of, but it's okay. It was a learning experience. So I called somebody on the phone. It was the son of a patient that was there. His mother was on the ventilator and she was really not doing well. And it was clear to the medical team that she was not going to survive. And no matter what we did, she was not going to make it. We could put her through more procedures and give her more tubes and lines and this and that. And it's not going to make a difference to her overall picture. So I'm trying to explain this to this person on the phone. And he is asking me questions and we're having a conversation. And then it gets to a point where I'm doing a whole lot of talking. And in my head, I'm thinking okay, this is good. He's absorbing this information. And what I'm trying to communicate is this is essentially futile care. Um, nothing we do is going to make her better. And I get to the end of whatever my sentence was and I stop talking. And before I had even finished my last word, he rears up on the other end and he says, you're trying to kill my mama. And I, I freeze because what do you say to that? That's, that's, not what I was trying to what i was trying to say, that's not how I was trying to come across. And now I'm panicked because someone has pigeonholed me and I don't know how to get out of it. So what did you do? I've heard asked me, what did you do next? I backtracked, Clay. I, I had no idea what to do so I started backpedaling and making a lot of mistakes and saying a lot of ums and clearly not confident about what I was saying and doing. And finally I realized, I need to apologize. I just need to say, I'm sorry. I have clearly miscommunicated. And so that's what I did. I just took responsibility for it. And I said, I'm sorry, but what I have said is clearly being miscommunicated and I need to do a better job with that. And he wasn't having any more conversation that day. I said, we're going to do everything we can for your mom, everything within medical power. And I basically click, hang up, conversation over. The next day, somebody has to call him and update him. And Clay, I hid for the next two weeks. I refused to be the person to call him, which in retrospect was not the right thing to do. But I just, I couldn't handle it emotionally. I just slunk away from that conversation every time it came up. Um, And I had a colleague who did a wonderful job and kind of patched things up. And um, it is a colleague that I have learned a lot from honestly, it was the beginning of my growth mindset journey. And for the first six months, I tried to hide away from those conversations, interestingly, and then realized this is a part of my life. And if this is going to be something I do for the rest of my life, I need to be good at it. And so I just decided I'm going to have to buck up and do this. And I listened to one of our palliative care doctors give a talk. I asked all of my colleagues When you have end of life conversations, what are the words you use? What are the things you avoid saying? What do you say? I listened, I like spied on other people's conversation, like creeped in the background while people were having these tough conversations so that I could be there and learn something. And it has gotten to the point now where I feel great about them. I am asked to do them specifically. I I'm super confident doing it. I used to get like sweaty palms, sweaty back, you know, that like anxious feeling you get. I used Mm -hmm. to sit at the phone and rehearse my lines before saying it. I would sit at the phone for 30 minutes. I would rehearse what am I going to say? And then I'd get on the phone and I'd have these conversations and I would do it like I rehearsed in my head with a little bit of variation. And now I teach students. And one of the first things I teach them is you're going to sit with me on the phone. We're going to call this person We're going to have this conversation and I'm going to let you have some portions where you can speak as well. And it's okay. If you mess it up, I will be there. I will rescue you. I'm comfortable doing it. And it's still gotten hostile sometimes as it does when you talk about end of life, but it has never gone poorly ever.
0: You talked about your growth mindset is the ability to embrace failure. And it sounds like it took a couple of weeks, which is pretty fast to embrace failure, but you embraced your initial failure. And it sounds like now people look to you to go have those conversations. I would love to hear what makes up that type of conversation. What are you saying? What are the words you're using?
1: So I... Start the conversation almost every time by asking people what they understand of the situation so that you know where they're at and you're not just spitting information at them that they can't understand or don't understand. And then I fill in the blank. So I spend a lot of my conversations are almost always 40-minute conversations and people think that's insane. But my patients feel like they got so much attention from the person taking care of their parent. And it's it's a big ass, but it, it is important. And so I sit down, I go through everything, and then we go through what their mother, father, sister, brother looks like. And the words I use are a lot of the times reflective of the other person's emotion. So I see you're worried about your mother. I see you're concerned. You just verbalize the emotion that they can't verbalize, that they are clearly feeling. And you reflect it back at them. You have this conversation. A lot of the times they tell you about what their parent was like and That kind of leads you into a quality of life discussion almost. Because Some people say, you know, my mom thrived on gardening every day and going to the grocery store and being independent. And you kind of have a a way to get into segue into this conversation where you're realizing that that will never be the case. And so you can kind of segue into that and talk about the fact that their quality of life This is the best case, worst case. So we play a lot of best case, worst case in the hospital. I say, best case scenario, this is what happens. Worst case, this is what happens. And we always hope for the best, um, but we prepare for the worst. In medicine, we can do things to people and we can do things for people. There's a big difference between those two things. There's a lot we do to people. And then there are some things that we do for people that actually make them better and help them. We do a lot of talk about suffering uh, everybody is always very worried about their loved one suffering. And those are kind of the big things that work with people. And I've realized people just want you to be honest. They just want you to give them your true, honest, professional opinion. And that makes them happy. They don't want a runaround. They don't want the beat around the bush thing. They just say. A lot of the times people are like, can you just tell me what would you think if this was your parent? And that's always kind of... <laughs> Mm, a dicey situation to end up with, right? Because you don't want to give personal opinions. You want to give professional opinions, but not personal. And so I do try to avoid those. Like, what would you do if this was your mom? I always try to back out of those because it doesn't matter what I would do if this was my mom. My mom and I have a relationship. We know what she would want. So it really doesn't matter if that was my mom in the bed, but it can help kind of guide what the kind thing to do for that person is.
0: Benita, I really like what you said around how you start the conversation, because you talked about just finding out where they are, what level of understanding they have. So you're having one of the most difficult conversations you could ever have in any scenario in talking to a loved one about the person that's dying that they can't even visit in the hospital and be with. And that's just, I you can't even imagine going and having those conversations, let alone becoming good at those conversations and being there for loved ones. I mean, it's just, that's incredible, but the concept of understanding where someone is before assuming that that they know, because the way you start that conversation, you can start that conversation, no matter what kind of conversation you're having, that could be a sales discussion, a business discussion uh, with a customer service agent. I mean, just seeking to understand where someone is today and then filling in the gaps is just a beautiful way to go about a conversation. So I'm just so glad that you brought that up because I just think that's useful no matter what type of conversation you're having.
1: Oh, I agree. I think the biggest mistake people make is assuming that someone is on the same page and then starting a conversation from that point. And that never goes well. You have to start by, and it's a good chance to give the other person the ability to express emotions and things about their loved ones and they give you a lot of information in that little period of time that you give them to speak before you start speaking.
0: Yeah, it gives you a lot of context. You can hear yeah, how emotional are they? What is their level of aptitude on on healthcare on, you know, how how much they know about what's going on and you get a lot of information that then you can you can use. And I mean, I'm you know, I've grown up in sales and my dad always told me that you have two ears and one mouth for a reason. Listen twice as much as you talk. And that goes so well with what you're talking about, because if you just listen, you're going to get way more information, way more context. The other person is going to feel like they're heard and it's just going to change the entire dynamic of the discussion.
1: Yeah. A lot of the times it just gives them the opportunity that people haven't allowed them to speak about their, just to speak about their loved ones. And sometimes that little period of time that they tell me about what their understanding is. I will often realize this is not the time for this conversation and I won't go into it because I'm like, they are not ready. You can hear it when someone speaks to you or they are not emotionally in this place. So you do things that kind of, gear somebody up for the conversation coming instead of just like throwing it in their face. And that that's when people get hostile, when they're not ready for a conversation and you're pushing it on them. And that's okay. People are allowed to take their time. A grieving process is a long process.
0: What other mistakes or failures from you, your team? I mean, this had to be such a learning process. So what other ones come to mind?
1: We didn't usually do something called proning patients, which is flipping patients onto their stomachs. So imagine tummy time for babies, except for adults on a ventilator on all mechanical support. And so we would make mistakes sometimes not doing that early enough where partially because it's a big skill and it takes a lot of people to turn a full grown adult that's paralyzed on all of these different machines and trying not to lose track of lines and machines and things. So we learned from that, how early should we do it? How often should we do it? We made mistakes in the beginning. We made mistakes with how early should we put people on ventilators in the beginning of the pandemic? We did it much earlier than we do now. If you ask us now, we, we, have a lot higher threshold before we pull the trigger on that because we know once you get on the ventilator, the outcomes tend to be poorer. So we try really hard to avoid that. In the beginning of pandemic, the recommendation across the board was, Hey, when you get to a certain amount of oxygen, you're pulling the trigger no matter what, like this is the next phase. Um, we thought early is better. So we made a lot of medical errors based on what we knew about other disease processes. And then as we learned, And as we got more data and more patients and other countries learned, we gathered all that together and realized we need to reevaluate our practices. And still to this day, every Thursday, we get an email about new things with COVID, new studies, new ways to treat. And I feel like every time I walk into work, there's now it's just a tiny little change, but there's tiny little changes as to how we take care of people.
0: Hey, and that's growth. I mean, that's just what happens. You fail and you learn and you make mistakes and you learn and you try again and unfortunately in healthcare it's you're talking about people's lives and nothing to be scoffed at by any stretch of the imagination but that's the reality that you were in and I told you this before but I commend you for and your the entire healthcare team over there I mean it, what you all had to face day in and day out was incredible trying to make decisions on the fly so I ask about these mistakes and these failures, not to point blame. It's a realization that no matter where you are, whatever industry you're in, there's always going to be mistakes. There's always going to be failures. And the thing is, is, you have to embrace those to your point on a growth mindset and you got to learn from them and you got to make adaptations after. And it sounds like that's what you all have been doing. Basically, the whole pandemic is learning as quickly as you can and then sharing that information, even globally, it sounds like, so that you know those mistakes aren't replicated in other parts of the world.
1: Yeah, it's been exactly that. It's been a challenge, but a good one.
0: I'm going to stay a little bit negative here because I, I want to tease this out before we maybe get to a little bit more of a positive spin on this. So what was one of the most difficult situations that you faced?
1: It's a really good question, Clay. Um, my most difficult situation, it's the first thing that comes to mind whenever anybody asks this question, is for the purposes of HIPAA, we'll change some of the exact details of the story. But middle-aged woman um, who has cancer, who's in the hospital during COVID, during the midst of it, when you can only have one visitor, it's very strict. In end of life, it's increased to four at most, no children in the hospital, period, end of story. So she comes into the intensive care unit. She's incredibly sick. It has to do with the cancer that is riddled in her abdomen. And she has gone through chemotherapy. She has two young children at home. And I have to be the one to tell her that she is dying and that this is where she is dying. This is, and she's lucid, she's with it. She can talk to me, she can have this conversation. She's partaking in it. Her husband is at her bedside and is crying. And this is the most difficult conversation I've ever had um, because I'm sitting with her and she's telling me about her two children at home who are both too young to come to the hospital. And she asked me to help her set up a video FaceTime of her children and her so that they can say their goodbyes on the phone over FaceTime. And I set it up for her and I talked to the children because it's better for us to be the bad guys and break this news than it is for family members to do that. So, I have to go through this whole conversation again, but this time tailored to children. I do that. The children are incredibly emotional. And then I'm, I leave to give them some privacy and I'm watching them say goodbye. Her saying goodbye to her children on the phone, knowing they're never going to see each other again. You know, and you're trying to hold it together because you don't want the patient to feel like she has to comfort you because it's her hardest time. And You need to just keep it together for the patient's sake, for her family's sake, and like kind of be the rock that they have to lean on. And anyhow, we give them, we give them a break. They have this awful conversation. I hated it. I I brought it home every ounce of this pain I brought home, which was also not a good thing. And I remember going to the break room and sobbing with the nurse that was taking care of her. I mean, just crying for like 20 minutes had to compose ourselves, get it together, go back, do the right thing. Anyhow, I I ended up bringing a lot of that home. I brought it home to Ryan that morning. The next morning when I came to work, I could not shake it. It was actually one of the experiences that led me to to think to myself, I need to talk to somebody about this. And I signed up the next day. The next day I signed up for therapy and was like, I need to speak to somebody about how I can manage my emotions better because this is
0: not healthy. Well, I can't believe that you got through that uh, that story like you did. Um, I'm struggling too. I've got two little kids at home. And uh, I can't imagine that. So, uh, wow. So the compartmentalization um, piece of this is – you talked about coming home, having all this emotion, as I feel like any human being would after seeing that along with all the other things that you deal with on a day-to-day basis, and then bringing that home and unleashing it on other people, on people you love, that leading to be like, hey, I, I need to do something about this. So mm-hmm. how do you start? What do you do?
1: I would not recommend compartmentalization for anybody except somebody who kind of absorbs these things at their jobs, And there's so many people who need that, right? Counselors and therapists and people that work with others in a tough situation have to learn. Detectives, people have to learn to compartmentalize. I realized that I was coming home and unleashing this like, range of emotions on my loved ones. And unfortunately, my husband got to be the only loved one that I was unleashing this on because You're not going to talk to your friends about it. It's just something you don't really want to bring up. And so I signed up for therapy, talked to a therapist, and I was like, well, this will be a safe space that I can discuss this, that I can just tell somebody my emotions and they can hear these stories and they can absorb some of this pain and they can help me find a learning opportunity from some of this. But some of it is just sad. Just there is no learning. It's just, it's just pain. And I know that doesn't sound very gross mindset, but some of it is just painful. And anyhow, surprisingly, my therapist didn't want to perseverate on these stories. Like I thought she would just let me go on and on and on and talk about it. And she kind of cut me off. And she was like, we need to learn how to deal with these emotions because right now you're just wallowing in them. So anyhow, I fine-tuned the art of compartmentalizing it. So in my car, I give myself my 30-minute drive home. That is my time to release whatever emotions I have and that's my time to kind of sort them into boxes, into like this was terrible, but it is work. And I sort it out and I if I have to cry, I cry. If I'm angry, I'm angry, but it is this like cathartic release of emotions in my car. I pull up to my driveway and I do not enter my house door until I have sorted through this. So sometimes I'm sitting in the driveway for 45 minutes trying to figure out how to kind of bury these things a little bit and um, compartmentalize them and put them in boxes that I don't open back up. And a lot of it is I, I get to that place, I come home, I have my routine, right? I shower, I change, I come to bed, I sleep it off. And the first thing I do when I wake up, because in my sleep, I feel like I'm working through this stuff. I sleep and I dream about work always. I wake up a couple hours later, four or five hours later, and this is the most important thing that helps. I go rock climbing. It's the first thing I do when I wake up from my nap, almost always. And it helps me focus solely on the activity in front of me. I'm solely focused on climbing. What am I doing? Where am I moving my hands? I'm happy. It's a safe space. And everything else kind of falls away. And then I can keep it that way for the duration of my days off. And I go back to work. And we start the whole process over again.
0: I'm not a therapist, of course, but I'm curious what you would say about, you know, you, you made a point about kind of burying these things, compartmentalizing, burying. And sometimes we hear that that's not a good thing, that if you bury enough that eventually the lid's going to pop and it's all going to explode out. How do you make it not so that you're, that that will happen?
1: This is going to sound... A little bit terrible, um, but you sort of have to remain detached at work. You try to remain emotionally detached, and there are obviously some things I just can't remain detached from. That one situation with that family, I could not remain detached. To this day, it makes me want to cry, and I think that is something I will just kind of have to carry, and something that maybe will has has made me feel thankful for life, and has kind of made me realize tomorrow is not guaranteed, and has given me new perspective. But a lot of the times, if you can just remain detached at work and while you're, it's very difficult while you're having these conversations, you need to be empathetic and sympathetic. And yet you need to kind of close the doors to your own heart. This is, you can't treat it like it's your mom. You can't treat it like it's your dad, your sister, your brother. You can't just let that emotion in. So um, I would not recommend burying emotions because they will come back up, but you can't wallow in them. So I used to have patients that would like Facebook friend request me. And a lot of the times it was people that had lost somebody and they just kind of wanted to be a part of my life. And so after they weren't my patients anymore, they would friend request me and they would post a lot about their loved ones who had passed away. And I realized that was incredibly unhealthy for me because I was reliving these experiences over and over. And it kept opening that box over and over and over again. And I I just kind of, I had to unfollow them. I had to just Bury it. I can't be a part of their grieving process. In addition to trying to do this work every day.
0: Yeah. So maybe it's less of burying it and just eliminating it. And
1: yeah, I think you're right.
0: Especially when it comes to you know, if like you're gonna eliminate, like, hey, I'm not gonna have this in my life, so I'm not gonna have these posts while they're maybe beautiful things, and it's just not to your point, not healthy for you. But gosh, so. For you and for the you know the other coworkers and colleagues that you have, COVID and everything like how do you remain happy during all this?
1: You look at the little things, right? You have little wins every day. People do well too. We love to talk about the negativity of everything, but people survive. People do better. People get in accidents and recover. Parents think they lost. For example, a parent whose son and daughter both got into a car accident same day, um, same car and son was found daughter did not have id on her so she was in the hospital but nobody knew who she was and parents are calling morgues because at this point they're like we've called every hospital system around and she's not there because she's under an alias fast forward and we call the parents and say hey this we identify the girl we call the parents we say we have your daughter she's okay this is the situation you know she's ill but she's stable And that's a win. I know it sounds kind of like a loss, but it's a huge win. It's somebody that has survived. It's somebody who thought they had lost a family member and they haven't and they have another day and they have a new perspective on life. And you just, you have to take those little
0: wins home. Hey, it's about time we brought some positivity into this. I keep asking about (laughs) negative stuff. So way to go, Benita. (laughs) (laughs) What, What other positive or rewarding moment comes to mind from a healthcare or pandemic standpoint?
1: I think the pandemic in general has provided perspective for everybody, for us, for patients. I think it has sealed the fact that mortality is real and it has helped us be grateful for every day. It has helped me be grateful. It, I have reprioritized my entire life. I think the pandemic has helped everyone get rid of the noise and filter out only the things that really bring them joy and kind of Marie Kondo'd their life for lack of better terms. And so I think, For my entire life, I know this sounds incredibly weird, but I would say the pandemic overall has made me personally happier. It has given me a sense of who I am, what I want, what I care about, who I care about. And it's helped me divert my energy into those things.
0: Do you feel like that that's common for other people in your field?
1: I think we hear the negative more than we hear the positive. I'd be curious if I sat down and ask people to truly reflect if that would be the case for them. I, you hear more bad stories than you do good. So I want to say it's not as common. But I also have heard wonderful stories about people transforming their personal lives and people discovering things about themselves that they never knew before. So I, I have to think it's at least somewhat common. I mean, you said that pandemic for you was also just kind of a reprioritization of your life. And it's a beautiful thing.
0: Yeah, it truly was. I mean, we, I count myself extremely lucky that we didn't have any pandemic issues in terms of anything. I mean, our, our, I was very lucky that our family was healthy, that we had, you know, a safe community to be in. We had food, we had a job, you know, everyone was healthy. Like we were very lucky, like just extremely lucky to be in the situation that we were in and not be afflicted when there's a lot of people out there that of course did not Have that same luck or that same ability to, you know, you know, maintain their job or I could work from home. I didn't have to be like you and go and put on protective gear for 30 minutes, you know, before I went on, on my shift at work or I, or I didn't have to be at a grocery store and, you know, be in front of everything. Like I was just very lucky. So I had time to figure out my prioritization and truly I like what you said around filtering. Like I was able to start filtering what was important in my life and start to think about what are the things that I truly want to spend my time on just like you did. But it's extremely impressive that someone who's, you know, you're working multiple 24 hour shifts a week dealing with complete uncertainty with a virus, learning every day, trying to keep people healthy, trying to save lives, having difficult conversations. And you still were able to have that perspective to go change. I mean, I, I commend you that you were able to do that with all that was going on in your life.
1: It was difficult to get there, I would say. And and we were, like you said, I, I was so lucky. My family was okay. My friends were okay. I kept my job. That's the thing. I had job security in the pandemic. So many people didn't. And I think seeing people at their worst or hearing stories and talking to patients and family members who say, today, it's my brother. Last week, it was my mother. Just kind of gave you, it gave you something to be grateful for. It made you realize every single day that you go home and your husband, wife, mother, father, children are home and alive and healthy, you have to be grateful for it. You have to count your blessings because that is taken from so many
0: people. What did you filter out?
1: Oh, I filtered out so many things that I was wasting time on just hobbies that were not really hobbies. I really narrowed my life down to rock climbing, going hiking, spending time with my husband. I spent so much time with my family, friends, husband. I stopped wasting time doing any sort of like shopping or things that I feel, things that I felt obligated to do. So if I was part of a group and I felt obligated to be a part of a social community, I just cut it out. It's, it's not bringing me joy. It didn't need it during the pandemic. And so therefore I don't need it anymore. I don't go out at night anymore, which <laughs> sounds terrible, but I like my nights at home. I love being home at 7.30, cooking dinner and laying on the sofa for two hours. That makes me happy. I don't want to have to go feel like I need to fulfill a social obligation.
0: When you're walking out the door and you're like, I don't know if I really want to do this. That's a sign that, hey, maybe you you don't, you don't have to do it. Most of the time, <laughs> right? You can spend the time how you want. I think that's great that you're able to start that filtering process and and recognize that you do have the ability to do that. Can't filter everything that we don't like out of our lives, but we can start that process. And the, the pandemic, I've heard it called a lot of different things like the great pause or the great awakening. And, and that's what it was for many people. There was a lot of terrible things that happened and you've illustrated some of those things, but you know, there's also a lot of things that we learned about ourselves or could learn about ourselves. And, you know, the hope is that as this world speeds up again, that we don't just go back to what we were, what we were doing before that we take the learnings that we, and, and the things that we filtered out and keep them out, because if it really brings you joy, then you should you know maximize the time that you can and spend it on those activities and those actions versus the things that you may feel an obligation. To do. And as the world speeds up, just I, I tell people all the time just be careful. Don't let it speed you back up.
1: That's what I'm worried about. I'm worried that as the world kind of renormalizes at some point, that we are going to fall kind of back into our old habits. And I'm hoping that we can hold on to this and think, really think through these are the things that we love, these are the things that are important to us. Everything else needs to take a backseat.
0: Benita, going back to the happiness factor here, you know, we talked about filtering things out and I know you've read some books and you talked about your growth mindset journey. So how did you go about learning and learning to figure out how to be happy or to how to have a different mindset? What did you do?
1: So I will say, first of all, I read the classic book, Mindset by Carol Dweck. And I, after my husband had been trying to convince me for four years to read this book, finally during pandemic, I thought, I guess it's time, and I wanted to hit myself because I thought, "Why haven't you read this four years before?" Because Carol Dweck was speaking to me personally. This entire book, it was amazing. It changed my life. It changed everything about the way I thought about things. I deep dived into what my personality is like, why I do certain things. Realized I am a perfectionist. Read a book called *The Gifts of Imperfection*. Um, It's a very short book and it's very tailored to perfectionists. Um, So if you're one of those, you would benefit from it. And I started looking up Enneagram workbooks. My mother-in-law is very big into Enneagram and one of the personality types, shocker, it's mine. It's a type one and it is the perfectionist. And it is kind of characterized by this voice inside of your head that is kind of constantly critically judging and, it talks about how to try to work on that and just get better about it. Stop listening to that voice as much. Stop letting it have as much control over you. And Carol in her, I think it's in her book that she says, you know, name that voice. Tell that voice. Give it a name. Cruella. Whatever you want it to be. And when it pipes up, you just tell that voice, I'm taking a new direction in life. That's not what I'm working on right now. I'm trying to be happier, more content, more satisfied and you do it over and over and over until you make it a habit. And recommended I I was recommended to do like a gratitude journal and so I did, you know, three things I'm grateful for every day. I read about trying not to take life too seriously which was a big thing, like not letting small things get in the way. And it was super helpful. Whenever I start to get upset about something that isn't a big problem, I just try to zoom out and just try to think, don't take life so seriously. It's okay. Things happen. And it has made me a far more content person. And I think content and happiness are very different, but it has made me far more content and led to much more happiness. And I think once you realize that everyone is doing the best they can with the resources that they have, it just leads to a happier life. It leads to more forgiving mindset, which leads to a happier existence.
0: Oliver Berkman wrote a book called 4,000 weeks. And I think I shared with you one of the, the chapters. It was about cosmic insignificance. And you talked about zooming out <laughs> you talked about zooming out and realizing hey maybe this problem isn't that big of a deal and so oliver berkman takes it to a whole nother level and he basically says hey if you really zoom out we are so insignificant we are cosmically insignificant and he uses it as a therapy mechanism that when things seem bad when things seem like we're never going to get out of whatever we're dealing with or you feel like you have super bad luck is to go through this therapy of just recognizing how cosmically insignificant that we all are. It's not just me or you. I mean, he, he even references people like you know, presidents or super famous people. Even those folks are relative to the the universe are insignificant. It's a bizarre thing to think about, but it it can work if you really zoom out. You can recognize, hey, this it really isn't that big of a deal.
1: My husband made me listen to that segment. I think at your proposal and I listened to it in the car on the way to your house and as I shut the car door somehow I managed to just slam my finger into the door and took this big piece of skin off and it hurt like hell and I wanted to scream and I thought Walker and Hayes are in that house (laughs) do not yell out right now and I shut that door, and we had just gotten done listening to how cosmically insignificant we are. And Ryan looks at me and he goes, is it too early to tell you that this is cosmically insignificant? (laughs) (laughs) And I thought he's right though. He's so right. It's just not, things are not as big a deal. It brings me back to just don't take life so seriously. It's going to be okay. Things are going to work out. Daniel Gilbert, the psychologist, I think you've also read his book, Stumbling on Happiness, he talks about the synthetic happiness, synthesizing happiness, and the fact that we all have the ability to do it. And a lot of his points are also about just not taking things so seriously. Things are not that big of a deal. If something doesn't go your way, it's not going to be the end all be all of things.
0: How would you explain synthesizing happiness?
1: We all have the ability to make our own contentness and happiness with where we're at. So I think as humans, we have this terrible habit of imagining if we didn't get that promotion, that job, that this, that that, our life is significantly worse off than it would have been. And the reality of it is our brains are designed to protect ourselves. Our brains are designed to allow ourselves to live with some contentness. And we when we don't get that job, that promotion, that whatever we're seeking, a lot of the times we actually kind of rejustify it to ourselves. So in two, three weeks, we'll see the person that did get that job or did get that promotion and we'll go, man, we would not have wanted that responsibility. Thank goodness I am still here. And you kind of talk yourself into all of the pros and none of the cons of where you're at. And you synthesize a happiness with where you're at. You've made, you are in a position, whether it is by force or not, and you have made yourself happy with that decision. You're looking at all the pros and you're kind of ignoring all the negatives about it. And uh, you just choose what to be focused on. It's perspective. And we all do it naturally. And he makes a good point. He says, the enemy of happiness is freedom to choose, which I thought was really interesting when you're forced into a specific spot, you will create in your mind why this is better than the opposite. And when you have the ability to change your mind at any time, you will agonize over whether you should go the other direction or not. When really, it's probably not going to have a life-changing impact.
0: Yeah, it's not that cosmically significant.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Bringing it all back. It's just not cosmically significant
0: a couple points on that. So first there's all these studies out there about happiness. I mean, there's so many books out there and Daniel Gilbert has a great one that you just referenced, but you know, there, there's always been a saying about how success brings happiness. Go have, you know, go make a bunch of money or go have a great job or raise a bunch of kids, what, whatever you think success is. And then you're going to be happy when actually all the studies say that happiness brings success. So it's a complete reversal of how to look at it, but our society always talks about go be successful and then you're going to be happy when it's the complete opposite is true is you go be happy, go figure out how to be happy and whether synthesizing happiness is maybe one mechanism to do that, go be happy and it's amazing what success can happen around you, how you're going to be surrounded by, by other people, how you're going to have a completely different outlook on the world. You're probably going to have more of a growth mindset and that's going to lead to success.
1: Do you think part of that is because people just gravitate towards happy people?
0: Yeah. No one wants to be around anyone miserable. <laughs>
1: the that, world, that world gravitates towards happy people. It's yeah, true. I mean,
0: opportunities, opportunities come like people say, oh, that person's so lucky. Sure. Like you can have luck. I mean, that, that's fine. But if you're consistently lucky, I bet you're a pretty positive and happy person. And you're like enjoyable to be around because people are going to bring opportunities to people they like, to people they enjoy being around. They're not going to bring opportunities, whether they're jobs or or investment opportunities or whatever. They're, it's not going to happen if you're a if you're miserable to be around. Like if you're always just thinking about how significant, cosmically significant you are, <laughs> and and woe is me. No one's gonna you're not going to get those opportunities. So yeah, you're going to attract opportunities and people and that is just going to have this force multiplying effect and success will kind of find you, I think is kind of what what the studies have shown.
1: So much of your life changes when you're happy. So much of your perspective changes when you're happy, when you realize you have what you need and everything else is a want. I think once you have a roof over your head, have food to eat, you're not struggling to figure it out and have people that love you. The rest is kind of what you want.
0: Any other topics or things, healthcare, professional, personal, that you want to touch on today?
1: We can talk a little bit about what should change with healthcare. I do feel very strongly, and I don't know if most people know this, but the majority of the people that have to file personal bankruptcy have to file it because of medical bills And that's incredibly sad. And I think with COVID and seeing people's long hospital stays and the fact that people got worried about how am I going to afford X, Y, and Z's hospital bills? What are these medical bills going to be? What's going to happen with this escalation of care? It made me so sad because I cannot believe that 70% of personal bankruptcies are medical bankruptcies and I don't know i think I, we have to change something has to happen i know people are very against universal healthcare, and i know it comes with its cons but how wonderful would it be if the next time you hurt yourself you didn't have to think twice what's my cocaine in the er should i really go or should i just you know try to ask my friend benita to come over and pop a couple stitches in here i mean i'm happy oh, to do it
0: <laughs> hey i've seen you i've seen you do it in person you've taken staples out of my wife's head I've seen you work in person right on the your living room floor.
1: <laughs> Happy to uh, take the cost out of medical care however I can.
0: <laughs> Just doing your part. So what do we do?
1: That's the problem. I have no idea where to start. It seems like such a big problem to tackle that I kind of understand why it hasn't been tackled yet because how do you change the fact that this whole country has thrived on ridiculous medical costs, but if you look at sometimes the cost across the border. So the cost of insulin in Canada versus the cost of insulin in the United States, and it's radically different. We have developed a society that profits on this. And so I, I don't even know where to start. That's the problem is I, as a worker in healthcare, have no idea.
0: Were there situations where patients made medical decisions purely from a financial standpoint?
1: No, people have not made medical decisions for that reason. However, it has been a huge thing that people have gotten nervous about. And, you know, talk to me about it and tell me about how stressed they are about it. And I'm just thinking, and I tell them, I'm like, let's, let's table that because right now we need to focus on your emotional health, like where we're at with your family member and not about what bills can I expect six months from now and then for the rest of my life?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, of course, I don't have an answer either. And we as a country in the United States certainly don't have an answer because we're battling about that all the time and, and what we should do. And it's obvious that there's not going to be a perfect answer. But you know, obviously you see that something needs to change eventually. I think that there's only, if you take inflation into account, I'll fact check this and correct myself on the back end if I'm wrong, but if you take inflation into account over the last 40 or 50 years, all costs of things have basically gone down. So cost of a car, cost of food, cost of like all this stuff has gone down because we've gotten economies of scale. We've gotten better, better technology, all that stuff. So if you take inflation, if you, if you factor in inflation, all that stuff has gone down. The two things that have gone up dramatically in the United States is the cost of healthcare And the cost of education and at some point there's going to be a deviation there's going to some there's going to be a breaking point where the cost gets so high for both these things both healthcare and education that the system is going to is going to break and i think that's the general fear and whether it's universal healthcare or some other fix something is going to have to happen because if you look at the graph it's extremely scary how how different those two aspects are versus basically everything else.
1: Yeah, it's it's insane. And you're right, at some point we're gonna have to correct this, it has to happen. Just hopefully sooner rather than later.
0: One thing that's always interested me is that you, you have such a unique work shift in that you work 24 hour shifts. So sometimes you'll work a 12 hour shift, but most of the time you're working 24 hour shifts and most of your colleagues as nurse practitioners are working 24-hour shifts. If I'm on my feet for eight hours, I mean, I'm thinking back to when I was bagging groceries at a grocery store and I was on my feet for eight hours as a 16-year-old, you know, I'm wiped out. And you're dealing with all the stuff that we've talked about through this, right? All the emotions, all the conversations, making sure people are getting healthy and getting out ideally out of the ICU. You're doing this in a 24-hour period, having to be alert and awake, basically during that entire time, like, I've always been amazed at, at such an important job being asked to be on their toes and ready to make big decisions or could be make big decisions and have big conversations in a 24 hour period. Like when you get to our 20, 21, 22, like you have to be really be feeling it.
1: I will say my first 24 hour shift ever and my second and probably my third, I thought this is not for me. There's no way I'm going to be able to survive this. I'm exhausted. How do people think straight? What am I doing? This is a terrible decision. And I think just like everything else in life, you do it over and over and your body just kind of gets used to it. I have my whole ritual the night before a 24-hour shift, how much sleep I get, what I do. And I rest up before, I rest up after. And shockingly now, I love twenty four hour shift. I feel I will say like two o'clock in the morning on a twenty four hour shift is pretty rough. Um, but otherwise, if I ever feel like I am exhausted or don't have the energy to have an incredibly emotional conversation at two o'clock in the morning because I'm feeling a little bit drained, I have colleagues that are working with me, fellows, other physicians, that are on a twelve hour shift. And I, they are happy to help however they can. So if I just say I've had an incredibly emotional 16 hours and I don't have much emotion left to give right now and I just don't have the energy to have this conversation, do you mind helping me? They are always there for me. They always help. So I'm not by myself. I think it would be different if I were totally by myself and everything fell on my shoulders. But we have little safeguards in place and I can ask questions and rely on the people around me. But, you know, there's nothing you can't do for 24 hours, especially with coffee. You just, you learn the peak effect of coffee and you just keep redosing yourself until the 24 hours are done. And it's a different mindset. You walk into work at a 24 hour shift, you know, halfway through your shift is in 12 hours. So at the six hour mark, you're, you're not fretting it. It's a quarter way through your shift. That's okay. You expected this.
0: Yes. Yeah. You just shifted your expectations. So yeah, it always impresses me as someone who's never worked a 24 hour shift, did a couple all nighters in college (laughs) cramming for an exam or something. But other than that, staying up for that long is seems wild, but if, Hey, like you said, your body adapts, your mind adapts. And obviously it works because you're able to care for others along with your colleagues. And so grateful to have you and your colleagues on the front line, along with all the other healthcare workers out there who always battle for us and, and try to keep us healthy and did so tremendously and did the best you could throughout the pandemic and continue to throughout the pandemic. So grateful for that, Benita. And um, last thing on a growth mindset. So you, you mentioned a growth mindset as an ability to embrace failure. And you talked about the book by Carol Dweck, Mindset, which I would also very highly recommend for those that are exploring this topic. Any other suggestions that you would have for someone who's maybe battling a little bit with a mindset shift and wanting to figure out, you know, what do I do? How do I change?
1: I think doing it for the tiniest, littlest things is important. It's, it's a practice. It's a learned practice and you can't just practice on the big things. Can't just practice on the big life decisions. So everything from an appliance breaking in your kitchen and inconveniencing you, or you having to try to figure out the dryer it, you have to practice in the tiniest, tiniest of ways. And it's helpful if you have somebody else in your household that can point it out when you're not really enacting a growth mindset, like my husband likes to do sometimes on the tennis court when he tells me I need to Carol Dweck my mindset a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and it's helpful. It's incredibly obnoxious at the time because you're like, you're right. And I hate that you're right, but that's Okay. It's the tiny things. It's the me getting upset when I play tennis, and Ryan reminding me that's not the right mindset. I need to shift into how can I learn from this? How can I do better? And so, yeah, it's with your fun things and the not so fun things.
0: There you go. That's great advice. The kind of incremental gains of trying to learn and build that habit of talking to yourself a little bit and hey, I'm gonna get upset. Maybe instead of getting upset for ten minutes, I'm gonna get upset for three minutes this time. And then maybe I'm only going to get upset for one minute. And then, you know, I'm going to keep telling myself whatever I need to tell myself to synthesize that happiness to your point earlier, to, you know, maybe rec- use some cosmic insignificant therapy and just realize that, hey, it's not that important and, you know, get into that positive mindset so that, you know, success and, and good things can happen. So, Benita, so grateful for your time, so grateful that you're able to walk through some really challenging questions around just a lot of challenging times with the pandemic and what you and your colleagues faced. So I'm just very grateful for you being open and willing to share those things and talk a little bit about your growth journey and being vulnerable throughout the conversation. I, I appreciate that and ending on a high note around finding happiness and figuring out how, how do we find happiness? How do we get that positive mindset? So, so grateful for your time. Thanks so much, Benita.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Hey, listener, it's Clay. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Build With Clay podcast. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen so you can discover all the episodes and hear from others about their growth journey. If you know me at all, you know that I love feedback. So please rate the episode and provide your comments so I can grow and be better for you and our guests. For more content, you can find Build With Clay on Instagram at buildwithclay and head to claydavis.substack.com where you can sign up for a bi-weekly newsletter sent directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're inspired to grow.